Well, good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you all here, and uh, it's great to be with you online. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here, and it is uh, just, it's just good to be together on this Sunday. Uh, we are officially kicking off the year uh, with our journey through the Bible. So that means that today was our first day reading Genesis chapter 1 through 3 in Psalm 1. I read them this morning. Uh, I used the app. So again, I just want to say it right now. If you have not downloaded the uh, Read Scripture app, our very own, I didn't ask him permission for this, but our very own Steve Heimler, who doesn't read the Bible on his phone, told me this morning, goes, hey, I don't like reading Bible on the phone, but this app's pretty awesome. So you have the endorsement of even Steve Heimler. So Steve, that one was for you, my friend. Uh, but it is it's really great. So we're beginning today. So jump on. If you haven't downloaded the app, if you're not ready to begin, if you haven't allocated time, this is the time to begin as we walk through this journey, through the scriptures together as a community this whole coming year. So if you have any questions on that, we'd love to be able to help and serve you. Now, as you're going to read, and maybe as you read even this morning, you realize there's some stuff in the Bible that's like, What? Like there's some, there's some strange things, there's some challenging things, there's some confusing things, uh, there's some controversial things. And so as we read through the scripture this year, one of the things that we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing a webinar about every two weeks or so on Tuesday evenings called That Stuff in the Bible. Because there's no other way to just call it but just that stuff in the Bible. So we're going to start in a, in a couple weeks on September 8th. It's actually going to be at 8 p.m. Yep. And uh, we're going to be focusing on, okay, so like there's different concepts around creation in Orthodox Christianity. Like how old is the earth? That stuff. You know, the real simple things that haven't been argued about for a really, really long time. So we're going to kick that around with a group of people who stand in different places on that uh, from our church. So join us in a couple weeks as we're a part of that together. It's going to be really, really great. That stuff in the Bible on, on Tuesday night. So just know if you haven't read the Bible before, you're going to run into some stuff. It would be a great place to be able to ask some questions as well as just kind of voice some thoughts, ideas uh, on that end. Now, um, as, as Christians, um, we, we hold to the fact that the Bible is God's word, right? I talked about that last week, that, it, that it's breathed out by God and it's useful for training and, and righteousness. And we're going to be spending a whole year in it. And so as we prepare to launch, and we'll launch officially next Sunday with the first sermon from the first week's reading, we wanted to take a moment and say, hold on. How do we know the Bible is reliable? Now, now, some of you may have asked that question years ago and you kind of wrestled through it. And some of us just haven't asked that question ever. Like, how, how do I know that I can trust this book? If we're saying that, hey, this is this book that's breathed out by God, how do, how do we know that's the case? Like, how do, we, how do we lean into it if it's supposed to have effect on our lives and change us? How do we know? And so this morning, uh, we're going to be focusing there, kind of like setting the groundwork, if you will, before we walk through a whole year together. Now, in lieu of a sermon, we're actually, I'm actually going to do an interview this morning. So we're going to do something a little different uh, as we begin the year. Um, and I'm going to have Sean and Ivy uh, come on up. Uh, these two have spent a significant amount of time thinking. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. At home, you can clap at home. Uh, they spent a significant amount of time thinking and, and studying and maybe even more so answering questions from people across the nation uh, about topics just like this. So uh, I'm going to introduce them real quick. As to, so this is Sean. This is Ivy. Hi. Good morning. Um, well done. This, this is what we, that's all we got. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a bio on each of them. Um, so Sean... Um, actually from Portland, Oregon, right? Been married 15 years to his wife. They have three kids, been at RCC about three years or so, members here, and um, something like that. 
We did the general math. Um, and and uh, now, uh, Sean is, uh, was a missionary, he and his wife, for about four years in, uh, in South Sudan first, and then uh, in an island off of Africa, and uh, mostly Muslim, which was a real challenging thing. So if you ever get a chance to talk to, to Sean about that journey, it was something. Um, but, and then from there, in the last five years, uh, he's been working for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Now, if you don't know RZIM, uh, they're, a, they're, a, they're an organization that has had significant impact on the evangelical world over the last 30 years. And, and they basically are, 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 are as their, their mission is to be able to answer thoughtful questions with faith-filled, questions, faith-filled answers, with, with, with clear and distinctive answers, better than I just did right there talking about what they do. Um, so one of the, uh, one of the, so you've been working for, 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 for RZIM for about five years. I mean, Sure, I get all the data correct here. Uh, you're the you're currently the um, the ministry director for the Zachariah Institute, as well as a traveling speaker, one of the, the multiple traveling speakers. Um, and uh, one of the things that Sean leads is the university missions piece, which goes across the country, different universities, and does forums and discussions for university students. Um, now, um, one of the things that Sean sent me, anytime you ask someone for a bio, I don't know if you've ever asked someone for a bio before. You know, they send you stuff, and then he sent in there, and also just random fact, I always wanted to be a backup dancer. So I just felt I that that should be, be shared. I just thought that that should be shared from the front here, that, that Sean did have a desire to be a backup dancer, Usher, or even Michael Jackson, so, you know, low aspirations. So there will be no dancing on stage today, but just so you know, this is Sean Hart. Very excited about having Thanks you with that. us. Uh, Ivy uh, wanted to also be a backup dancer. That was not your ambition so much? Never once in my Never life. Never once. There you go. That's why you guys are a great team. Ivy's been, Truly. Uh, Ivy's been at our church for about four years, a member of our church for about four years. She has served, um, she serves, currently serves as a youth coach in the youth ministry. Um, Ivy is on my preaching team and, and contributes invaluable insight and perspective uh, from the scripture. Uh, she's also has been part of uh, some of the teaching equipping courses that we've done here at RCC. So she's invested heavily into our, our church. She also uh, works for Ravi Zacharias International Ministry for six years now. And, um, and Ivy has done a lot of different things. She currently, your current role is uh, director of the RZIM Academy, um, which is, uh, handles the online uh, international training program for all of our ZIM uh, all over the place. Now, both of them co-host a, uh, a podcast called Cover to Cover, uh, so they get to interact quite a bit. So I'm the oddball out today uh, as we have the two of them sharing some of the, their insight and perspectives. But one of the things that, uh, that Ivy gets to do is she also travels some, uh, with, with Sean and their team sometimes to universities doing these very kind of things, answering tough questions like, how do we know that the Bible's not just a made up by a bunch of people that don't care uh, or doesn't matter. So Ivy uh, has a real passion for the word, uh, a deep love for it, uh, has a background in anthropology and history, so a deep love for how the scriptures come about. So this morning, because of all the work you guys have done in the past, the work you currently do, uh, we wanted to spend this morning talking a little bit about why do we trust the scriptures? How do we lean into that? So I'm just going to jump right in, and uh, I think Ivy, I think we're going to kick off with you. Just kind of say, okay, why is the Bible trustworthy? How do, how do we lean into it and say, okay, we can trust this thing. It's dependable for us. So lead the way. Okay. Good morning. Okay. Uh, disclaimer up front. There is a lot of information on the world about all the topics that we're talking about today. Most of it you could Google or spend a ton of time researching and reading for yourself. It's 2020. The internet exists. We're not doing that as often as we should. So a lot of what Sean and I do is just spending the time to do the research and actually think through some questions that people are asking us or maybe should be asking us but aren't. 
and then collating it all and just kind of bringing it to you from being able to say, we're not experts on this topic, any of these topics. We've read a lot of experts that are, and we've done our best to bring you research that is good to hopefully just kind of whet your appetite for things that we're gonna talk about. Trust is a cumulative case. Uh, no one thing should cause you to entirely trust something. So when we're talking about the Bible, if I'm asking, is the Bible trustworthy? I'm actually asking a couple different things. And you might be asking a different question than your neighbor or family member is. We have to talk about internal validity. How do we know that this book even is the book they wrote? Does this book make sense in and of itself as a thing? Okay, well, that's important. We also have to talk about external validity. So does the stuff that the Bible says actually happened can we actually verify that it actually happened somewhere other than the Bible? That's good to know. But the Bible could be true and you could still not care. And so the question becomes, if I'm gonna trust the Bible, does it say true things about me and about God and about my reality? Can I actually live the way the Bible tells me to live? All of that. So let's start with the first one, which I think is really important, internal validity. So how do we know that the Bible we have is actually the Bible they wrote. Um, I did not bring the book up with me. Uh, Sean and I are going to give you a number of resources on an RCC Connect after the fact. Um, so the book that I'm quoting from, uh, I will put on there later if you're super interested in reading it. Okay, first thing we have to talk about. There's this thing called an autograph. There's this idea that the very first time that somebody wrote down, let's say, the book of John, John was writing the book of John, there should theoretically somewhere in history be the original version of John that John wrote. Okay, and then so theoretically, that thing called the autograph gets copied and copied and copied and copied. And eventually, somewhere way, 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 way down the tree, we end up with the copy that we have. Okay, now realistically, history actually works a little more, it's a little more complicated than that. For a book, really long book, like one of the Gospels, like John or Mark or Matthew, uh, maybe even a real long book that Paul wrote, like Romans, the odds are actually really good that Paul or John wrote several copies of that and sent them out all at once. Because the point of that book was that for it to be read and distributed, essentially published really widely. It's also a really good chance that Paul or John or whoever kept a copy of that for themselves because it took them a long time to write these things and it was a lot of work. So actually, probably in real life, there were four, five, six, seven real autographs from the original author of the same book being distributed at the same time, which helps explain why we get so many copies of it so early in so many places because you weren't just talking one to a hundred, you were talking six, right? For some of the younger, or not younger, sorry, for some of the shorter books, the more personal ones, let's say Paul writing to Timothy or to Titus, actually odds are good that there really was only one copy of that because he wasn't intending Timothy to copy that and hand it out to the rest of the church. Timothy just kept it. Now it seems like Timothy kept it and then copied it and then probably some of Timothy's students kept it and copied it. Um, but basically what that means is that the original, the original version uh, written on papyrus probably only lasted 75 to 100 years. The early church didn't care if they had the original. They cared if they had a good copy of the original. They cared about the message, the thing in and of itself, the original paper copy was not the thing that mattered most to them. What mattered most to them is whether they had the words right. Okay, that's all well and good. Now we have to say manuscripts. So, really quick thing. There is this field called textual criticism. That's all I'm gonna say about it because that's all we have time for. 
basically textual critics try to figure out, do I have the book that was originally written? This gets applied to the Odyssey, it gets applied to Plato, it gets applied to any old school author that you've ever heard of, textual criticism. One of the things we have to figure out is, do we have the text that they wrote? One of the ways to figure that out is you get a bunch of copies of the same book, the same text, and you compare them against each other to figure out where the differences are, and you figure out, by comparison, what was the original core, the stable text that was underneath all of these? How do you tell what got changed from where? So dating has to do with that. Um, manuscript placement and numbers have to do with that. But there's also just a lot of common sense, right? Of, okay, on balance, does it make more sense for this to be changed to that or for that to be changed to this? And the more copies of a text you have, the easier it is to tell whether that's happened or not. Okay, so I'm just gonna talk about the New Testament for a second, because it's sort of its own entity here. We have about 5,100 manuscripts of parts of the New Testament. That's a lot, actually. Most ancient books, you're doing really well if you've got 20 to 30. Um, things like Homer, you start getting up into like the thousands, um, which is pretty good. Those numbers are changing all the time, but suffice to say that comparatively, the New Testament has more partial or nearly complete manuscripts than any other classical work by like a lot, guys, a lot. But the thing is, is that that only matters so much, right? That can't tell you that the Bible's true. It can just tell you that the Bible was preserved really well. More importantly, it tells you that the people reading the Bible thought it was incredibly valuable. So valuable that they were more likely to copy that than something else. And that actually tells us a lot about how people were using it and why they thought particular books, particular letters getting circulated were important. That's really good for us to know. We don't have equal representation of everything in the New Testament. I know that's uncomfortable, but, but think with me for a minute here, okay? So we have really good attestation of the entirety of the book of Mark, pretty much right off the bat. No, sorry, book of John. Book of John, pretty much straight through right off the bat, first century, second century. Mark, we have very little of it until really late in the second century. I know that sounds scary to our Western minds, but actually from an ancient documentation standpoint, what I can tell you is that what we have is well attested historically. There are more than enough copies to make sense of the text that we have. And even the least certain parts of the New Testament comparatively are more certain than most other ancient books. We can have tremendous confidence that the book we have, the individual books we have, are the books they wrote. I know that sounds simple, but it actually really matters. And we can have really good confidence that that's true for the whole of textual field. We don't need a lot of manuscripts to be able to tell that, but we have them. We don't need a lot of early manuscripts to be able to tell that. Late ones are just as good, but we have those too. And we have the common sense of being able to tell what makes sense from the message and what they were trying to say. The Bible holds up really well all the way across the board. So manuscripts are a huge deal, obviously. They're a huge I mean, deal. It, for any document, that, but, but it's beyond a manuscription, right? Now we've gone to, to, to archaeology and yeah. like does the stuff match up? So what does that look like on that front? Yep, and one thing that's helped me with that is thinking about a puzzle. If I were to paint a painting and then you were to make a thousand puzzles out of it and then we circulate those puzzles and you know my kids or dog ate one or my kids threw one away, you'd still be able to find what the original painting is when you bring all those puzzles together, even if they have random missing pieces. So that's a helpful way to even think about that. Um, but no one ate piece, no dog ate yeah, pieces no, of the no, Bible. Yeah, Just exactly. so we're clear, that's yeah, not what we're talking about. None of that, yeah. 
But when it comes to archaeology, I think one of the exciting things for me when it comes to um, studying archaeology in the Bible is just even just the strong, there's a strong history and then there's a strong posture that we have as Christians. And these are critical. And when I think about the strong history, you look at um, oftentimes the first place that archaeologists will go today when they're going to dig in a place that the Old Testament describes, usually the first place that they will visit to see where to go and how to, how to go about the, the, the lay of the land is the Old Testament. And because it's so good at describing the area that it's describing. And I mean, I've been over to Israel. I went through Hezekiah's tunnel that still exists. You read about that in Kings. Been to what they think is the foundation of Peter's house off the Sea of Galilee. You look at this stuff and it's just absolutely astounding to go and have it before your eyes. But it's interesting with archaeology as well. You have some, when you look at the history of it, and look at a city like Jericho. We look now and we say like, Jericho is one of the biggest finds archaeologically. But at one point in time, and like I think it was, it was yeah, 1868, um, a man named Charles Warren was one of the first preliminary uh, digs there. He was a one meter off of the like Neolithic towers that is just like epic when it comes to the dig of Jericho, one meter off. And here's what he concluded in 1883. He says, the general impression given by the result of the excavation is that the mounds were formed by gradual crumbling away of great towers and castles and sunbreak. He's saying the gradual. And there's a story in the Bible that there's the, the walls fell like that, but this is a gradual crumbling away. This is, without knowing the story, you can kind of see he's going a bit against what the scriptures say and that the walls came tumbling down, if you know the, the song. Um, and he's like, no, the walls came gradually tumbling down. <laughs> so that was that. A lot of people were like, they dug. There's no Jericho. Well, then the 1930s, 1950s, 1980s, more digs happened. And uh, like I said, now what we have is pretty epic when it comes to archaeological findings. So m the thing that really frustrates me about this is that I think some people probably walked away from their faith because Jericho wasn't found. Yet he was one meter off. I'm like, man, just one, one meter. And I've heard it said, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And that's something really important to remember around a lot of these things. It's only a matter of time. If you, uh, we'll share some resources on uh, the Facebook page about different archaeological places you can go. They are continually finding things. Um, there was something just recently found. It's a, a ring of, um, a signet ring that they use for the signing. They're finding stuff like every week still because they're still digging. And that's the strong history. So now that brings me to the strong posture that we have. You know, it'd be one thing if us as Christians were like, oh, they're still digging. Oh, gosh, what are they going to find? What are they going to find? Gonna... Okay. <laughs> that was a close one. No, like that's not our posture. Our posture is like, can we fund more digs? Like, please keep digging because the more you dig, the more you find to actually confirm what is written in here. And you guys, I just, that needs to sink in for us, that that is our posture when it comes to digging in the land which it describes. It'd be a whole nother thing if we were like, please don't dig. But instead, we're like, yes, keep digging. So that, there's a lot when it comes to this topic, even when we get into prophecy that are, is confirmed within the Bible. Again, we're not able to go into all of it. And that's only just one little hint of the archaeological data. Yeah. That's a huge deal. So manuscripts are obviously are one of the foundational elements to, to, to 
affirming the reality of something being solid, and then archaeology. I mean, does it match? And it's like repeatedly, yes, it matches. It matches. It matches. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not controversy. It doesn't mean there's not objections, right? I mean, there, you, you may have heard them. You may have had them. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. Maybe you're watching online. You're like, hey, I've actually still have major issues with like, ah, then there's some like controversies, some things that don't line up exactly. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about just kind of some, that's maybe one of the main objections that seems to happen related to the scriptures. And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the contradictions uh, that, that are usually brought up. So Ivy, you want to walk us through that? Yeah. Uh, so basically, the reason I have to give you this answer right now is because Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci Code. Um, most people could tell you, most Christians could probably tell you, uh, look, I know the Bible actually wasn't put together by 12 white guys in a room with the door closed, but I can't tell you what actually happened. <laughs> Right? Um, we have a bad habit of being able to tell people what we don't think is true without actually being able to tell the real story. The canonization of the Bible, how we got from a papyrus thing that John wrote on that only lasted 200 years to the book that you're holding now, or hopefully holding now, or have on your shelf somewhere, or on your phone, is primarily a matter of collection and human discernment. Allow me to give you a moment to be uncomfortable about that. <laughs> Actually, it turns out to be great news for us because I think the canonization of scripture and the story of how we got the books that we do is actually one of the best cases, historical cases I know, to prove that God loves us. So let me talk to you about that for a second. Wow, the amount of notes I have for this is unbelievable. Okay, here's the deal. Between the writing of all of these books, probably in the first century, our earliest copies of some things are in the second century, between then and AD 400, there are 18 canon lists for the New Testament. That means authoritative texts from church fathers that we trust saying what they think is the inspired word of God. Out of all these letters circulating around, all the literature that the early church was using, here are the lists that they used. The earliest of those is from our friend Origen in like 250, which is pretty soon after some of these books got written, actually. So. The church had the Gospels, the Book of Acts, and nearly all of Paul's letters by 200. Because you gotta keep in mind that these canon lists were the end of a process, not the beginning of it. If Origen's writing about a, book of a list of established books in 250, those books had been used and vetted by Christians for a long time before then. So it's actually great news for us. So like, so people like, like when Paul, Paul, when Peter's talking about, and when our brother Paul writes, and it's a little confusing at times when he's talking about that, somehow Paul's letter is getting around to right. Peter and he's reading it also. That's right, right. somehow. That. So we see yeah. that even as the New Testament's being written, which right. is fascinating, because that's actually a rare glimpse. We don't get that a lot. Yeah. And um, all of these lists, all 18 of them, they all include the Gospels, no surprise. They all include Acts, and they all include most of Paul's 14 epistles. 12 out of the 18 include what we would call like the Catholic epistles. So that's like James, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude. Um, Revelation's a little more complicated. Is anyone surprised by that? <laughs> if you've right. read it, you're not surprised. You're not surprised. <laughs> yeah, you can see why people were fighting about it. Origen was like, really? What do we do have to? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the question becomes then, how did they pick? Right? Because there's all these fringe books going around at the same time as the books that you're reading now in your New Testament. There's like the Apocalypse of Peter and the Shepherd of Hamas and the Epistle of Barnabas and all this kind of stuff. And in the midst of that, there are books that we wouldn't even consider fringe that are just like straight up, not a real thing. Right? So how did people figure out what was real and what wasn't? I'm glad you asked. 
First, there's a difference between religious literature and scripture. And in fact, even when books were getting assembled together into codexes, so things that were actually bound together, like we would think about as a book, Christians understood that there was a difference between scripture and religious literature. That was just good for reading, but not necessarily inspired. Um, we do this all the time, right? And so if I handed you a book of the Bible and then a commentary by Tim Keller on that book of the Bible, I would assume that you understood that one of those was scripture and one of them wasn't. Right. But I think they're great to read together. Yeah, Tim's, um, Tim's awesome, but he's not that awesome. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, despite how often we use him in sermons, <laughs> like we don't actually think Tim Keller is the inspired no. word of God, right? But we think he's super helpful. Right. And so it makes a lot of sense to hand you, for instance, Hebrews and Keller's commentary on the book of Hebrews. The early church did this just like we do. So there's a difference between religious lit that's good for reading and actual scripture. But how to decide whether something was actual scripture these people were using their heads. They were in process with each other, in community with the Holy Spirit. Some of the paradigms that they used, authorship. Do we know who wrote this thing? Can I tell that this is the book that John wrote? Do I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody that knew John? And the answer for the first 200 years of church history was yes. It's incredibly difficult during this time period to distribute a work within the author's sight range and change it without getting called out. And in fact, we see this happening with other books, that Greek philosophers were actually getting people arrested for plagiarizing and changing their works, right? So this was happening all the time. It was totally possible to maintain the text that was originally written in community, partly because they knew who authored it. Also, does it have orthodox theology? Does it disagree? Does it contradict something in the Old Testament? Does it disagree or contradict something in the Gospels, which were really certain really early? How about the book of Acts? Does it actually make sense with the message that's being formed in the rest of these documents? That actually gets us a long way. That's the reason that most of these books didn't make it in. And finally, this question of inspiration and practice. These were Christians with the Holy Spirit and dwelling in them in a Christian community who were intent on faithfully following the word of God. Imagine if you only ever got one letter your whole life. The Christians from the second to the fourth century did not have a fraction of the amount of scripture that you had to live your life on a daily basis. Some of these people had one book, one book their whole life to live their Christian faith off of. How seriously would you take that book? And here's the thing, having the Gospel of John, having the Gospel of Mark, having Romans was enough for them to be able to live a faithful life. Why? because ultimately we're talking about a relationship with a living God who communicates with us, who corrects us, who loves us, and who encourages us. That's how we know this book is real, because people in conversation with the living God who wrote it helped them figure out what sounded like him and what didn't. But I hope this is encouraging to you guys, because think about it for a second. Do you realize how few Christians in history and how few Christians in the world right now have the luxury of holding this? Every book in it, here, you have 12 copies of this at home, right? We can access it for free, without fear, and without shame. I don't take this seriously enough. The fact that we are living in a time where you can read all of this in a year on a daily basis, and that God can use this to speak into your life, we are profoundly privileged. Amen. And the fact that God has preserved each and every one of these 66 books through persecution, through bad weather, through humidity, through neglect, through all kinds of things to deliver it into your hands when you could have had no book at all is extraordinary. It's really powerful. I think the, uh, I mean, obviously there's the sense of 
you know, it's not the Constitutional Convention that put together the Bible. I think that's, you know, we have a mis misconception of like, hey, but that's not how it played out. It took a long time, a lot of thoughtful people who were really, really serious about what they had in a way that candidly we have a hard time accessing. So that's some of how we have to shift our hearts and minds as it relates to the canonization of like, when was this decided upon? Um, but beyond canonization, there's, there's, there's the question of, con of controversy or really contradictions, right? There's, I mean, that's a standard question that comes to you guys. Yeah, I, 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 first I was surprised at how much came up, but then I, I ceased to be surprised now. Like yeah. I was on UC Berkeley's campus and I was talking to a student and we were, back and forth, and he's like, well, we all know that the Bible's full of contradictions, and I was like, do we? Um, and so, luckily, I had my Bible there. I pulled my Bible out. I put it in his hands. I said, okay, can you, can you help me out and show me the, one of the contradictions you're talking about? And I think in that moment, my Bible got very, very heavy for him, because um, he didn't have one. And this is one thing you'll oftentimes find if someone actually brings the objection of contradictions in the Bible. Oftentimes, they don't have one. And here's where we have an opportunity. We can be the type that would shame them, make them feel stupid, and see, like, see, just like everyone. Everyone always does this, and you did the same. That's, like, the worst thing to do. That is not following what calls, with, uh, you know, living out with gentleness and respect, our witness. Instead, we want to be generous toward them, and we want to be, we want to have a posture of gentleness, gentleness and we want to um, be shepherds of the conversation. So I considered it my responsibility to actually provide this person with a supposed contradiction. And so... I'll pull out something like, and I won't go into great detail for it here, but I will uh, speak a little bit about it. I say, okay, well, maybe you're thinking about the fact that, see, I'm saying, that way he could just say, yes, this is what I was thinking about. Uh, maybe you're thinking about the fact that all of the gospels, all the accounts of Jesus, when you look at the resurrection, you have different, the accounts look different. You have Matthew and Mark are both saying there was one angel. They only talk about one angel, but then you have John and Luke. They both taught, they say there's two angels. Um, so what's up with it? Was there one or was there two? Got you. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I get why you might like look at that and say, well, these uh, obviously contradict each other. Well, when we actually do some digging in and some research on this, you can see there's something that um, Mike Lacona, he actually lives right, right up in coming. He's a New Testament scholar. He talked about this idea as literary spotlighting. And we have to remember that the authors wrote these accounts with particular, uh, particular aim in mind. This is also critical when you look at the genealogies with Matthew and Luke, the fact that they are different. Like, did Jesus really have a different grandfather? No, they're doing different things there. There's, there's a particular reason they're writing in the way they are, and they highlight particular things that they are doing. So that's always an intention of the authors, always critical to kind of to look at. So with Matthew and Mark, it's basically we're saying like, Okay, so they describe it in different ways. And literary spotlighting would be this. If we had a play going on up here, um, I don't know if you ever watch a play. I recently um, saw Hamilton because it was on Disney. So I was like, okay, there's a moment where everything's going on. There's plenty of other people on the stage, but I only see one person because the light is right on them. That doesn't mean there aren't other people around. It doesn't mean there aren't other things going on. It's just, this is what I want you to see for this particular moment, for this particular reason. Well, that's literary spotlighting. It's the same thing when it comes to uh, things in the scripture. There's particular reasons that they probably wanted to see this one angel rather than two. And the other thing you get into when you think, okay, it says there's two angels, and then it said, they said, and then it quotes. Okay, do we really think that they both said it at the exact same time? And, or are we actually saying, okay, they said, and then actually one of the angels spoke on behalf of the two? You see, there's, you, when you start to dig into the details, there's problems with either way, that you, either way that you look at it. So just let literary spotlighting help me quite a bit. But we do this all the time. Like, 
Matt, you guys recently moved. If I asked you to tell me the story of what the move was like, and I asked Becky to tell me the story of what the move was like, um, they'd be very, probably some similar accounts, but some yeah. different experiences. Yeah, same, same, same yeah, thing. Yeah, exact yeah, same yeah, thing. Yeah. I recently moved um, our president of uh, RZIM into his house on Friday. Well, his wife happens to be on the, on, in Oxford still. So she's on a computer on a couch. What moving into their house was like would be a very different account for her as she had books and things flashed in front of her as to where Michael, who was running around with a knife in his hand, cutting boxes open. They're describing the same thing, but the experience that they're describing is based off of what, how they want to tell the story. We do this all the time, and this is actually a really good thing, you guys. Okay, so you have someone object to you on the fact that their, their gospels are different. Here's what you want to say. Okay, imagine each account is word for word the same. Is that okay now? Conspiracy. Do you see the problem? When witnesses to a crime, when detectives get there, what they want to do is they want to spread them out as quick as possible so they don't have a chance to corroborate. And when detectives are looking at a particular scene, a crime scene, if everyone is saying the exact same thing, they know that they didn't get to them in time, that the story has been colluded. There's been collusion. So now, they spread out the witnesses, they get the different, there's enough of the same story, the anchor points, but there's enough of a nuance in there that there's some different details that very, show much, very much that this is, this is an authentic story. And that's what we see when we read these accounts. They're very similar, but there are these differences, and that's a good thing. So the objector can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, they're different, but then if I were to provide you with exact copies, you'd be like, well, they're the same. You see, you can't have it both ways. So that's, that's one thing, and on this topic, all of these topics, people have done this, for researched this for years and years and years, so this is not new. So if you come across something, don't fret. Say, okay, someone's probably thought about this a lot longer than I have and then we go and find the answer. That's really how we got into what we're doing, is we continue to search out answers for people. Yeah, true. So, so, how, so, I mean, I think the question we end up running into is, why, why does this matter? I mean, why, this really matters. We've just said it, like, this really, really matters. But, but why does it matter, and how do we get our hands around the centrality of it? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah let, me, let me start, and then you can pick up all the things I miss. Uh, one of the reasons this really matters is because at the heart of our faith as Christians is not a book, there is a person. So we rise and fall on Jesus. That's all there is to it. And we could get into this whole thing about Jesus being a historical figure. I don't have time for that right now. He was. Uh, but Jesus was a person who took the Old Testament incredibly seriously. His teaching and his words in the New Testament are saturated in the Old Testament. He really thought this stuff was true. He really thought this stuff was true. I'm just gonna give you a handful of these, but there are dozens more that will probably come to mind for you. Check out the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 to 7 is basically Jesus quoting the Old Testament to his audience and then raising the stakes. It says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? He talks about, uh, he quotes Deuteronomy at the devil when he's tempted in the desert. I love that. If you thought Deuteronomy was boring, go read the Temptations of Jesus before you get to Deuteronomy in our reading plan. In Matthew 15 and in many other places, Jesus takes the rulers of Israel to task because they know the scripture, but they're not living it. He says, do you know the Bible or don't you? Do you follow the Torah or don't you? And the answer is no, and you'll be judged for it. He holds them to the standard of the law. Whew. How about my, one of my favorite interactions in scripture? You get it in Luke and Mark and Matthew, uh, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and they're discussing what is the heart of the law? The rich young ruler says, I've done everything the, Lord, the law commands me to. And Jesus says, then give away your possessions, sell everything you own, and then come follow me. 
and the rich young ruler goes away sad because he's grasped the letter of the law, but not the spirit of it. Finally, uh, Jesus references the burning bush like it's a real thing. Uh, he says things like, I knew Moses, you're not him. <laughs> and he quotes Isaiah and Psalms basically every other time he talks in some of the gospels. All this to say, the Old Testament was a lived, breathed historical reality to Jesus, and Jesus used scripture to teach his followers. And we see Jesus' disciples and later apostles doing the exact same thing. The apostles only ever pointed people to what Jesus said. Mm -hmm. We're in a historical tradition that treats the words of Jesus, the words of God, all the way through very seriously. Yeah, and so much of this hinges on Jesus for me, like his authority, his life, his teachings, his death, uh, the type of death he died, the, the fact that he, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. To die like that, um, to me is astounding. And then to rise from the dead. The resurrection for me is so, so bedrock with so much of what I believe. I, Jesus is my authority. I look to him. So when he affirms that all of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms were written about him, I'm saying, okay, like you're the one I actually look to and I trust in. Um, that's why this whole Jesus myth thing is, is one, it's on the outskirts of history, but it's also very important if someone actually actually adopts that view. It's really important to get to who Jesus is, if Jesus is uh, one of our, you know, if he's our main authority, which he is. And the way this worked out for me personally, I wasn't raised a Christian, became, you know, really put my uh, feet behind Christ when I was 22 years old. Jonah, man, I don't know about you guys, but Jonah disturbed me. I'm like, do we really believe this? A fish? Like, really? Are we, are we seriously, we believe this? Like, that was kind of like everything in here? <laughs> Um, and I, I struggled with that. But then, you know, as I'm reading my Lord, and he says this in uh, Matthew. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He took this exact story I was struggling with, and he said, that happened. <laughs> Just as that happened, so this will happen. And pointed to the very thing for me that's a bedrock, his resurrection. And here's the thing, you guys. When I'm wrestling through things in the scriptures, especially when it comes to something like Jonah and some things that I maybe don't understand about how, um, you know, B Babel and how that whole thing worked out, I look to the resurrection. I say, I believe, and I've done the historical study on this too, I believe there is such good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, literally, physically, actually rose from the dead. And if I believe that someone can be raised from the grave after three days of being dead, I can imagine and I can put my trust in the fact that somehow, even though I can't understand how it all worked out, that somehow someone was able to live in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. So that's, that's where I continually go back to the resurrection and to my Lord as my authority. Yeah. So let's just close by manuscripts, archaeology. Like these are all really important, really significant things. They really matter. They are bedrock. They're something to trust into. But like, why do you, why do you trust? Why do you depend on the scriptures? You already you know, initiated that a little bit. But why, why do you? How can you yeah. put your trust in it? Yeah. So there's the archaeological data, all that stuff. But really, for me, I mean, there's a, there's one objection that comes through that the Bible is just a man-made book. It's people who just made up a religion. And I'm like, you know, if I was making up a religion, this wouldn't be it. No. Like, I'm a fighter. I'm not a flight guy, okay? So to turn the other cheek for me, I'm sorry. Like, that's a really difficult thing. Pray for those who persecute you? Really? I wouldn't write that. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience various trials and persecution. Really? Like, you, if you read through the scriptures and the way that it tells us to live, like, it's actually, for me, one of the things that puts my trust in the Bible is the fact it's, it's a bit backwards, I guess, is that it doesn't flatter me. You know, if I, wanted, if I was going to create a religion, it would be something like the New Age belief, the secret, something like that. Here's, here's a quote from one of the founders of The Secret. It says, the law of attraction is really obedience. When you think of things that you want and you focus on them with all of your intention, the law of attraction will give you what you want every time. Ooh, That's Lisa Nichols. Here's another New Age believer, uh, author. He says, so we are the creators, not only of our own destiny, but ultimately we are the creators of the universal destiny. We are creators of the universe. That sounds really good. Like, I like how that makes me feel. You know? And if I was going to create a religion, it would sound a little something like that. Like I'm in charge. I'm in charge. Yeah. Um, now, this, we have to avoid the fact that this is completely impractical for most people around the world. Um, but that's the kind of thing that I, I would do. When I read the scriptures, I'm like, I'm just struck with the fact that this God disagrees with me multiple times. And I disagree with my, I don't meet my own standards if I'm honest. So if I'm reading a book that says it's from God and it is my cheerleader, that's a bit of a problem. You see, the Bible hits this unique strand where it shows a great value on the reader. There's great value that we all have. There's a great love shown and commitment shown toward the rebellious people. But there's not a, there's not a flattery there. It's like, yeah, you're still, keep moving, keep moving. Be, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. It's the fact that it disagrees with me. It's not a God I've created in my image. It points me to a God whose image I am created in. And when I see the way the Bible transforms people, it's not just this like, read a book, transformation. It's this, we know it's working with the Holy Spirit, but I see how, pe how this book has transformed the people who read it. It's absolutely astounding. And sometimes, I, you know, your guys' preaching is awesome. I love the preaching here. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes all I need is that scripture reading. I still remember being back at uh, elementary school. Ephesians 4 came up and it was read. Walk in a manner worthy according to the calling which you've been called in all humility and uh, gentleness and patience. That was all I needed for that day. I spent the car ride home apologizing to my wife for not being as gentle, not being as patient as I should have been. The word of God sees me <laughs> as I see it. So that's yeah. a bit of a counterintuitive way yeah. I come to trusting in the Bible. Yeah. What about you, Ivy? Oh, so many things. Uh, for me, it really comes back down to this whole cumulative case for trust thing again. Um, the Bible's a beautiful book, but there's a lot of beautiful books in the world. I read a lot of books in a year. Uh, if it was just a book, it would be something else. I love the Bible because it points me to the person that I love, and that's Jesus. Uh, so uh, a few friends and I went hiking yesterday morning, and my friend Greg Picard back there was the one who put the hike together. And Greg just moved to Georgia, uh, first time that he's ever arranged a hike for all of us to go on. And so the question becomes, do you trust Greg to lead this hike? And it really looked like it was going to thunderstorm yesterday morning, so this was a real question on my mind as I was driving up there, right? Okay, well, Greg is a pretty thoughtful guy, it seems like. It seems like he'd done his research. I think that he would be thoughtful enough to check the weather before we start the hike. Greg seems to have internal validity, as far as I can tell. Okay, now once we're on the hike, we're walking around, Greg's got his stuff together. He's got an app that shows you everywhere on the trail. Um, he's paying attention to how long the distances are. He's making sure we're making the right turns. He seems to be cleared, like, 
connected to reality. It seems that Greg has external validity, which is great news when you're on a hike with someone, right? But more importantly, by the end of the hike, I trusted Greg to lead that hike because of the way he did it, right? He paid attention to how people were doing. He made sure we stopped for water. He made sure that we had the opportunity to say yes or no, to go see a view or not see a view, whether we wanted to add distance or take it off. He was a good host while we were hiking. At the very end of this hike, if you asked me, would you trust Greg to lead another hike for you to go on, I would be like, yeah, sign me up. All those things were part of the conversation, but at the end of the day, the reason I trust him now is because I went through one with him once. That's what relationships are actually like. I trust Jesus because Jesus has proved to be who he tells me he is going to be. And that risk, that having to lean in, that saying, I cannot do this if you don't show up, it will not happen. I cannot make myself better if you don't do something, I will be this way forever. I can't save myself if you don't save me, I am lost yeah. and I am dead. Jesus does that for me every time, yeah. every time. And he gives me the Holy Spirit and he doesn't leave me the way that he found me and he loves me and he guides me and he corrects me. And he gives me community when I need it. And he gives me things I didn't even know I needed to ask for. That God is the God I love. And that God gave me a book. Because <laughs> he knew that there would be times where I couldn't trust the voices in my own head. And I couldn't tell what was him and what was me. When I needed someone's voices beyond my own. When I needed more than I knew what to ask for. Yeah. He gave it to me in a book I could pick up and read and know for certain that I could trust but I trust this because I trust him. And this is the primary tool that God uses in my life to bring me closer to him. And I am so thankful for it because of that. That's why I love the Bible. That's why I spend as much time as I possibly can in it and teaching it and trying to learn from it. But if it ever ends at the Bible, I think we've done the Bible wrong. When we put the Bible down, we should be looking to Jesus and saying, thank you for that. Yeah. That was hard, that was challenging, but it was good and I love you. And if I trust you, then I'll trust this. Amen. Boy, thanks, Abby. I think that, uh, that's, what, that's what leads us to the table, right? I mean, that, that Jesus we've just been talking about, everything hinges on Christ. Every conversation, every argument, every wrestling with the Bible hinges on the reality that this entire book has points towards a savior, points towards someone, that he is the center, he's the, he's the object, he's where everything is moving towards. And that's what we're gonna be focusing on as we spend this year. And, and this is the same Jesus who, on the night that he's betrayed, he's got these, these 12 guys who've been with him for, for three years. And, and he, he sets this meal in front of them. He says, I want you to, to do this after I'm gone in remembrance of me. And these are the 11 who on the, mount, on, on the mountain with Jesus after he's been resurrected, it says, that, and they worshiped him. Monotheists worshiped Jesus and would die for him later. It says though, but some doubted. And so I, I wanna close with this. I wanna invite you to the table and maybe you still have doubts. Maybe you're like, yeah, but I have some questions. Like, it's okay. This is a good place to doubt. Take the scriptures. God doesn't need PR. He's like, come, ask me the questions. I'll wrestle with you all day long. This is good news because he loves you. And so as we come to the elements this morning, as we come and we take the body of Christ broken and his blood shed for you, know that we stand on solid ground because we stand on Jesus. And if Jesus is true, and if Jesus was raised from the dead, then loved ones, I have good news. Everything else falls into place. If he didn't, it doesn't matter. It's that strong and it's that stark. 
but it does matter. And, and this Jesus invites us to relationship with him, to a meal, and that's the centrality of what we get to worship by taking the elements and remembering him and anticipating his return where we won't need to read about him in a book one day, but we will see him face to face. Man, may that be today. Let's pray.